there are also uh, other Confucian sort of moral stories that talk about sons cutting uh, into their own flesh um, and cooking it for their fathers while they're traveling from one place to another because there wasn't any other food. There seems to be a lot of sun eating going on in ancient China. Hello and welcome to a theater hour edition of China Talk. We will be reading stories from the Warring States period. Joining us are our voice actors, Chara Lin and Jacob Gunter, as well as our scholar in residence, Jennifer Dogson, who has translated the stratagems of the Warring States. Jen, so what are the stratagems of the Warring States? So it's a long book of political and diplomatic and military anecdotes from about 500 BC to uh, unification, which was in 221 BC in China. And it's mainly about politicians uh, finding various new and inventive ways to cheat one another out of what is rightfully theirs. And I'm translating them just because I had a very long commute and I needed something to do on the train. So I started doing that. So how does it compare to some perhaps more well-known ancient books of yore? What are sort of reference points from this book? Well, in terms of the the Chinese intellectual context, I would say it's really famous as being the sort of textbook of the School of Diplomacy, which was all to do with, you know, how to construct an argument and how to persuade people. And it was also strongly linked to the School of the Military. So it would be things like which uh, they, they didn't really see any difference between political and military means. So both were integrated. And these are mostly dialogues. What gives? Did, were people acting these out 2,500 years ago? I would really like to believe it. Uh, I like to, to imagine people sort of getting around the fire and reading them out and, and sort of discussing them, which is, you know, reading was a social activity back in the day. So, so it's possible that, you know, 2,000 years ago, people were doing exactly what we're doing now and then having a discussion about the story. But yeah, no, usually the, di- the point of the dialogue is... It's almost like crosstalk comedy where you've got one straight man and you've got one uh, sort of main guy who scores a point off the, the straight man. And you're supposed to be able, like the conclusions are, you know, sometimes you get these stories and then it has like the moral of the story is this in a sort of narrator at the end. What are the dialogues expecting of the audience? Are they supposed to be blank slates to argue about? Are the morals relatively clear? How, how does the audience receive these stories? To a huge degree, you're supposed to come up with your own moral to the story. Where there are lessons explained, usually what it turns out to be is one of the commentaries has accidentally got included with the text and now it's it's stuck in there forever. But yeah, no, I would say that usually every story has multiple layers and usually the top layer is just the fact that even though these guys were really smart and they were clever and amoral and cheated one another and did it successfully, Chin still won because Chin's fundamentals were on point. So no amount of intelligence will save you. That is the underlying message to the whole book. But uh, then individual stories have demonstrations of logic that people can repurpose or anecdotes or, you know, ideas that they can read. Awesome. So we'll talk more about the context, but let's jump into our first story. So this story is called Chin Recruits Troops and Advances on Zhou to Demand the Lion Cauldrons. And this was in the years really immediately before unification when Chin's victory was pretty much a, a done deal by this point. 
And it was so strong that it felt that it could threaten Zhou, which was the tiny state that constituted the remnants of the previous dynasty. And what it wanted to do was march against Zhou and demand nine bronze cauldrons from 100 years ago that symbolized the right to rule over China. And obviously the, the rulers of Zhou, no one wants to be the last member of his dynasty. Uh, so they're, they're desperately trying to find a way out of this. And I guess we can just start going. So, Qin recruited troops and advanced on Zhou to demand the nine cauldrons that symbolized rule over all under heaven. The Lord of Zhou was worried about this and reported it to Yan Shui. Your Majesty should not worry. Your servant begs permission to travel east to request aid from Qi. Yan Shui arrived in Qi and spoke to the king. Qin has strayed from the proper path and wishes to raise troops and move against Zhou to demand the nine cauldrons. The Lord of Zhou and his advisors, having deliberated extensively, would rather render them to your great state than give them to Qin. By securing the survival of a state in danger, you will embellish your good name. And by gaining the nine cauldrons, you will augment your treasury. I hope that your majesty will plan for this. The king of Qi was delighted and dispatched 50,000 troops, appointing Chen Chensu as general to assist Zhou. As a result, Qin's military abandoned its goal. Qi's general requested the nine cauldrons, and once again the lord of Zhou was worried. Don't worry. Your servant begs permission to travel east to resolve this. Yan Shui arrived in Qi and spoke to the king. Zhou relies upon the integrity of your great nation. You have secured the protection of our lords and servants, fathers and sons. We wish to offer you the nine cauldrons, but do not know which road to use to send them from Zhou to Qi. We will bring them through Liang. Impossible. The lord of Liang and his advisors also want to take them and have been plotting it for many a long day at the foot of the Hui Tower and on the banks of Lake Shaohai. If the Nine Cauldrons enter Liang, they will not leave. Then we will bring them through Chu. The Lord of Chu and his advisors also want to take them, and have been plotting it for many a long day in Yeting. If the Nine Cauldrons enter Chu, they will not leave. Well, then what road shall we use to transport them to Chi? Our humble city has the temerity to be worried on your majesty's behalf. The nine cauldrons cannot be treated like vinegar, jars, or sauce bottles. They cannot be simply carried into chi in one's hands. Nor can they a flock of birds startled by a crow, or running rabbits or ducks on the wing, able to slip into chi of their own accord. In the past, when Zhou attacked Yin and took the nine cauldrons, 90,000 men were used to transport one vessel, and 810,000 for all nine. Every officer brought his infantry and camp followers and prepared his equipment such that it could be called adequate to the task. Even if you now lavished all your people on this, which road could they take? Your servant has a temerity to harbor private concerns on your majesty's behalf. You come here time and time again only to offer us nothing. I would not dare to deceive such a great state. Make haste and settle upon a road for us to take. Our humble city awaits your orders. Consequently, the king of Qi abandoned his efforts. Reflections. Why Why do you choose this story to kick us off? It's, if it's not the most famous story in the book, it's definitely one of them. 
And Jens Schweig doesn't appear anywhere else in history, and yet he's become proverbial as a, a gift, uh, you know, a gifted diplomat because of this story alone. Uh, this idea that he alone managed to save the integrity of the dying Zhou dynasty and drag things out from us just by just by this plan, which is offering the King of Qi something that he knows he's never going to be able to complete because there are only essentially two roads to Qi from from Zhou, and both of them involve passing through enemy states, which would uh, which would just capture whatever he was transporting. He's free to offer this, knowing that he'll never be able to deliver on the plan. Chara, what was it like embodying the spirit of Yan Shuai? I think he was just a fast-thinking fellow who also happened to be a good actor and just had his nation's best interests in mind, maybe? Works for me. Um, <laughs> uh, Jen, what's up? what's up next? story is called East Zhou Wishes to Grow Rice. Uh, and the background for this is that uh, at the point at which the story had taken place, uh, Zhou, the, the sort of the old imperial states, had actually split into two. There were two factions of the royal family that had each set up their own little rump towns on a tiny amount of ground, sort of county size or small in China. East Zhou was downstream of West Zhou on the Yellow River. So it meant that while in theory it was independent, in practice it was dependent on West Zhou for a lot of its irrigation water, and that is the background for this story. So I'll just go straight into it. East Zhou wished to grow rice, but West Zhou refused to open the irrigation channels. This worried East Zhou. Master Su spoke to the Lord of East Zhou. Your servant begs permission to make West Zhou open the irrigation channels. Consequently, he went to see the Lord of West Zhou. Your lordship is following the wrong strategy. If you do not open the channels now, you will simply be enriching East Joe. Currently, their people are all planting wheat and nothing else. If your lordship wants to injure them, there would be no better course of action than to open the irrigation channels, and thereby blight the crops they have planted. If you let the water through, East Joe will have to return to planting rice. And after they plant the rice, you can once again deprive them of it. This being so, the people of East Joe can be made to look to West Joe, with their fates being in your lordship's hands. Very well. Master Su received money from both states. So yeah, that's a, <laughs> an atrocity <laughs> and, and a bit of cash. So always good there. Um, Jen, how have these stories like resonated throughout Chinese history? Well, what's the reception of them been over time? Uh, I would say that it's, everyone disapproves of them while enjoying them. Uh, because, they, of course, they do go... <laughs> very strongly against sort of conventional Confucian morality and, and so on and so forth. But they're also really good mm. stories. And people have a sort of sneaking admiration for even the worst characters. So Jack Yu is going to come up later, who is an out-and-out con artist. But he's also famous for having pulled off good con. And that's, that's sort of a skill in itself. It's sort of the same ambivalence that you get surrounding the Qin conquest, I would say, as a, as a whole. Everyone knew that uniting the empire was a great thing, and it's wonderful that someone is doing this, but it would have been really nice if it was someone less fascist-looking. So, yeah, there's, there's still this sort of sense of ambivalence around. All right. Uh, Gong Ta defects from West Zhou. Okay. This is happening at roughly the same time. 
Gongcha seems to have been a member of the Chu royal family in some capacity, but uh, a lot of these guys, they would be born in one state or even as the royal family of one state. And they'd get a better offer elsewhere and then just sort of become prime minister of another state. It was, uh, it was entirely mercenary at this point. Gongta defected from West Zhou and headed for East Zhou, bringing with him complete information about West Zhou's position. East Zhou was delighted. West Zhou was enraged. Fang Zhu spoke to him. Your servant can kill him. The Lord of West Zhou gave him thirty catties of gold. Fang Zhu had someone take the gold with a letter crossing into the borderlands and giving it to Gongta. The letter said, To Gongta. If it is possible to bring your business to a successful conclusion, endeavor to do so. If not, flee immediately and return. If things drag on too long, information will leak and you will sign your own death warrant. He then took the opportunity to send someone to report this to East Joe's investigative agent. Tonight, someone ill-intentioned will try to enter your domain. The police caught Gong Ta and gave him to East Joe, which immediately executed him. I just like that one because it's it's so atmospheric. You can really imagine Gong Ta getting stuck in the borderlands between the two states with this uh, letter that he has no clue what it refers to or why someone has sent it to him in his bag and then just uh, getting dragged away by the cops and, and executed for something he has no clue about at all. So, yeah, I, I just like that story. And it, it is kind of typical that... Uh, I mean, the, the implication of the letter is that he's he's planning to carry out a political assassination, probably on someone high up in in the leadership. And it was something that happened a lot. You know, there's several there's several assassination stories in the stratagems. This is probably the least famous one. It was Jin Ke trying to assassinate Qin Shi Huang with a couple in the hand fun. A bit of a Hamlet vibe, no? Oh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Uh, sort of sneaking about doing doing dark deeds in darkness, yeah. And then the, the the fact that the Zhou family were at each other's throats by this point and, and each claiming to be the rightful king and murdering each other as well. Did, like, books of stratagems exist for other eras as well? Or was this the only period where, like, things were so dastardly as to, like, create such incredible characters? Uh, I mean, people did, later on, people did write these write sort of anecdotes about military exploits and so on, and also fictionalize them to a huge degree. So you get things like the the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is real people, but juiced up a bit. I would say that at this time, it was the time at which people had maximum freedom to write openly about this without having to tack on a, a Confucian moral level at the ending. Uh, in later dynasties, you know, you couldn't be openly admiring of you know, the, these people, uh, someone like Ming Zhe in the Ming Dynasty, he, he got into serious trouble and ended up in jail, partly just for expressing a mild admiration of, of the Qin, Qin bureaucrat. Afterwards, it would have been a lot more difficult to write something like that. Zhang Yi runs out of money in Chu. Okay, so the background to this is a little cloudy. We know that Zhang Yi was a diplomat for Qin, and he's one of the big stars of the book. At least every section has at least one really barnstorming Zhang Yi script. But uh, he was also a con artist. He came from nowhere. No one knows what his background was or even really where he started off. At some point in Chu, he attempted to steal the royal jewels, and uh, the crown jewels, and, and 
the Prime Minister had him beaten nearly to death. Uh, and he got, apparently he got home and asked his wife, uh, have I still got my tongue? And she says, yes. And he says, in that case, I'm good. Uh, so it's not clear if this story is happening before or after he got the beating. His chutzpah was such that it, it could be either, frankly. But yeah, at this, top, at this point, he seems to be working as, a, as an independent operator and find himself a job. So uh, that is the background for the story. Zhang Yi was in Chu and ran out of money. The landlord of his hotel was irritated and wanted to send him away. You only won rid of me because of my old clothes and hat. Wait until I get an audience and speak to the king on your account. At this time, Queen Nan and Zhang Xiu were honored in Chu. Master Zhang went in to see the king, but the king of Chu was not pleased with him. If I'm not the kind of advisor that your majesty could employ, I request permission to go north and seek an audience with the lord of Jin. You have my assent. I don't care about you. Is there nothing that you would like to request from Jin? Gold, jewels, pearls, and ivory all come from Chu. We have nothing to request of Jin. Your majesty is simply not attracted to women. What? The women of Jung and Zhou are as pale as rice flour with jet black eyebrows, waiting by the side of the road in their villages. Those who know no better see them and take them for divinities. Chu is a far-flung and backward state, yet we have not seen these central states' women of such beauty. Could we see them and not be attracted? Accordingly, he provided Zhang Yi with pearls and jade. Queen Nan and Zheng Xiu heard about this and were extremely worried. They sent someone to speak to Master Zhang. General, your servants have heard that you are going to Jin. As it happens, we have a thousand caddies of gold here, for you to distribute among your attendants and provide hay for your horses. Zhang Xiu also gave him another five hundred caddies of gold. Master Zhang bade farewell to the King of Chu. The borders of all under heaven are closing to travel, and I do not know when we shall meet again. I hope you will permit me to raise a toast to you. As a result, drinks were served. In the midst of the drinking, Master Zhang bowed again and made a request. We have no one to share this with. I wish your majesty would summon some good company, and I will raise a toast to them. Accordingly, he summoned Queen Nan and Zheng Xiu, and they raised a toast. Master Zhang bowed again and begged to speak. I have committed an offense against your majesty that merits the death penalty. What is it? I have traveled throughout all under heaven, but I have never yet seen anyone this beautiful. When I told you I could get you more beautiful women, I lied to you. Oh, forget about it. I was sure that in All Under Heaven there could not be others like these two. And it, it's kind of a nice story because it seems from the rest of the historical material that we have out there that this was the start of a, a beautiful platonic friendship, uh, seemingly, between Zhang Yi and Zheng Xiu. Uh, Zheng Xiu was known for being an absolute scumbag in every possible way. Um, and they just seem to have uh, vibed with one another on the basis that they were both totally amoral in their political dealings and really got along and collaborated on a lot of nefarious projects as a result, which is rather sweet. Next up, we have an attack on Zhongshan. So the background of this is pretty interesting. Zhongshan was a non-Huaxia state, so they weren't 
they weren't sort of proto-Han Chinese. They were some sort of northern tribe that had moved southwards over the years and eventually set themselves up in a state and they, they'd taken up writing, they wrote Chinese, they had Chinese forms of government and so on. They were sedentary. Uh, and the trouble was they were uh, rather small states and they were ended up entirely surrounded on all four sides by Zhao land, which put them in a, in a quite difficult military situation and they, they did end up being sort of wiped out before a lot of the states. So yeah, in this story, uh, the, they're having one of the many military escapades, this time involving, uh, the state of Wen, uh, uh the state of Wei, which was, uh, not too far away. Not directly on the border, but on a long way. Yu Yang served as Wei's general in an attack on Zhongshan. His son was in Zhongshan at the time, and the lord of Zhongshan cooked his son and sent him a bowl of the soup he made. Yu Yang sat in his tent and drank it finishing the whole bowl. Marcus Wen spoke to Du Shizha. To further my plans, Yui Yang ate his son. If he will go so far as to eat his son, who would he not eat? Yui Yang repressed Zhongshan, and Wen rewarded him for his success, but remained suspicious of him in his heart. I would also remain suspicious of people who eat their children to prove a point? The weird thing is, there are actually two interpretations of this, the two versions of this story in the book, and this one comes down firmly on the non-child-eating side of the argument. And the other one kind of suggests that if the son is already dead, then the Confucian thing to do is to eat him, because that will help to secure your own position and the survival of your, your other offspring. There is sort of a moral argument to be made. It just never, they never really make it explicit. Yeah, interesting, like, binding of Isaac flip here. Oh, I didn't think about that, but yeah. I had to reread this story twice. I thought it was a typo. I was like, no, no, there's no way. There are also uh, other Confucian sort of moral stories that talk about sons cutting uh, into their own flesh um, and cooking it for their fathers while they're traveling from one place to another because there wasn't any other food. There seems to be a lot of sun eating going on in ancient China. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of multiple other cannibal stories as well, so it, it seems to have been a preoccupation. don't know how often it actually happened. The Queen Dowager of Zhao takes over the running of state affairs. Uh, so yeah, this one is, it's included mainly because it contains what I believe to be vernacular old Chinese which is rare as hen's teeth and extremely difficult to translate. And no one is even sure what it would have sounded like. There are so few examples. This looks like something that could possibly be it. But it's also interesting insofar as it sort of, it does show the degree of freedom that everyone had in this era, that everyone, you know, history looks back on it as being this terrible dark era with everyone getting massacred, getting heads chopped off and things like that. But because you had this competition between states, it meant that people could vote with their feet to a huge, uh, a far greater degree than they could in later eras. So if, obviously if it's all one empire and you piss off the emperor, then that's it, you're done. But if, if there's five or six states right nearby, then you piss off the ruler of one and you just go to the next one. Uh, and that meant that you know, you could wander in and just chat to the king and 
and insult him to his face or tell dirty jokes or, or you know, whatever it is you feel like. There's a one, uh, a long setup to a punchline about um, King Hui of Chin being gay. And some guy just wandered in and told him this joke to his face, one of the most terrifying guys in the world. But in, in this case, um, the Queen of Zhao has just taken over running the state on behalf of her son, so she's serving as, as regent. Uh, except her health is not in, in a good state. She would actually die the, the following year. Though she seems to only have been in her late thirties, though she talks about herself as though she's, she's sort of 98. So she, she ends up having a long discussion about her health with an old friend and then a short discussion about some politics afterwards. The Queen Dowager of Zhao had just taken over the running of the state affairs when Qin launched a surprise attack. The Zhao family begged for aid from Qin. Qi said, You must send Lord Chang'an as a hostage, then we will dispatch troops. The Queen Dowager was unwilling, and the ministers of state remonstrated vehemently with her. The Queen made her position clear to her entourage. If anyone speaks again of sending Lord Chang'an as a hostage, this old lady will spit in their face. The officer of the left, Chu Long, requested an audience with the Queen Dowager, who was irritated but bowed to welcome him. He entered the palace, moving slowly. He arrived before her and apologized for himself. Your old servant's feet are aching. I've lost the ability to move quickly. I have not come for an audience in a long time. And I have selfishly refused to give myself a hard time over it. But I was afraid that your majesty's health was failing, and I wanted to come and set eyes upon you. I rely upon a wheelchair to get about. Are you not eating and drinking less these days? I get by on rice porridge. And recently I found myself wanting to eat noticeably less, so I forced myself to start walking three or four li every day. And my desire to eat returned a little. I'm more comfortable now. I couldn't do that. But her expression relaxed a little. I have a son named Shuchi, the youngest of my children. He's a worthless boy, but I'm declining and I indulge my affection. I wish you would order him to have his black robes repaired in order that he can serve as a palace guard. I wanted you to hear this before I die. I respectfully assent. How old is he? Fifteen years old. He's young, but I wish to entrust him to you before I'm placed in the ground. Men love their sons too, don't they? Even more than women do. The Queen Dowager smiled. It's completely different for women. I privately believed that you were fonder of your daughter, the most excellent Queen of Yen. You were mistaken. I am not as fond of her as of Lord Chongun. When parents love their children, they make deep, far-reaching plans for them. When you sense the Queen of Yen off, you clung to her heels, weeping, thinking of your sorrow, and having her so far away, and we too pitied her. After she went, you did not stop thinking of her, but rather you sacrificed and prayed for her, begging, please do not let her be sent back. Weren't you making far-reaching plans that your children and grandchildren should go on to be kings? Now, during the past three generations, and even back to the time when Zhao became Zhao, are there any sons or grandsons of the former sovereigns of Zhao still in their positions? There are none. And it's not only in Zhao. Are there any descendants of the other feudal lords that maintained their positions? I have not heard of any. Of these, some brought disaster directly upon themselves, and others handed it down to their descendants. Could it be because the sons and grandsons of the lords of men are inherently unskillful? 
They receive elevated positions without having to earn them via their achievements. Abundance is given to them without having to work for it, and they class themselves in all the appurtenance of state power. Now, you've given Lord Chang'an a respected position. You've endowed him with fertile domains and given him great treasures, but until now you've not let him accumulate any achievement on behalf of the state. One day, the sun will rise upon your completed tomb. And how then will Lord Chang'an manage in Zhao, with only himself to rely upon? I feel that your plans for Lord Chang'an are short-term ones. Therefore, I concluded that you did not love him as much as Queen Yen. Very well. My lord, you may order this as you see fit. This being done, Lord Chang'an was allocated a hundred chariots and sent to serve as a hostage in Qi, and Qi dispatched his troops accordingly. Zing heard about this. If the children of the lords of men, though they may be flesh-and-blood relations of their rulers, should rely upon respect unjustified by achievements, upon prosperity they have not worked for, or upon stockpiled gold and jewels, how much more should this apply to public offices? It's kind of nice, uh, the, the fact that, you know, people had more freedom, and that included women as well. So for, in later dynasties, they, they'd be stuck inside and obviously couldn't just wander into the harem and have a conversation with the queen. Uh, whereas in this area, you could, there's sort of uh, a book, um, you know, guidelines on how to be a good wife that was just translated from Chin, and it is absolutely not sticking to the Confucian rules. Basically saying, as you know, if you can try and get all your work done before going out drinking with other men, then that is great. They, they were not these really strict sort of Confucian people. And then at the end, you've got a nice sort of interesting bit of uh, class warfare going on. So uh, one of these bourgeois bureaucrats complaining that a lot of the time the, the old royal families are, are giving their offshoot uh, really high-level bureaucratic postings without them having to earn them. And uh, it's high top about that. So, yeah. I think we absolutely need to do a show about Qin Dynasty guide to being a good wife. Jen, Chara, Jacob, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you.